You're listening to Metal Matters, the official weekly Gimme Metal podcast. Highway to Hell, the final record that Bon Scott would do with the band. And this week, we're covering Back in Black, the first record to feature new vocalist Brian Johnson, formerly of the British band Gordy or Jordy. Do you know how they actually pronounce that name, Jay? You know, I think it's Jordy, but I, don't quote me on that. I, I, I don't, it, could be, it could be Gordy, but I know it's like a reference to he's from Newcastle. Uh-huh. which is, I believe, in the north of England. And so that's like a, um, that is a reference to like, that's what you would call the people from that area, Gordies. Like like, so like where Sabbath comes from in Birmingham, they're Brummies. Uh-huh. And where, where in, up in Newcastle, like where Benham is from and mm-hmm. where, um, where uh, Brian Johnson is from, they're, they're, they're Geordies or Gordies, but I'm not, I'm not, I think it's Geordies though. The UK has a very, a lot of peculiarities, man. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of very peculiar mm-hmm. things about the UK. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a whole other podcast, though. <laughs> <laughs> In a very endearing way, might I add. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So as we mentioned, uh, after losing Bon Scott, ACDC moved forward, and um, they got Brian Johnson to be their vocalist. And um, according to uh, a recent article that I read, uh, it, was, it was Bon Scott's dad who actually urged the Young Brothers to find a new guy and continue with the band. Yeah, uh, Chick Scott, I believe, is, uh, was Bon's dad's name. And uh, they had traveled to Australia for the memorial service, the funeral. And I guess uh, Chick pulled Malcolm and Angus aside and sort of encouraged them to carry on, as it were. Yeah. Oh, by the way, let's mention that uh, we failed to mention that this is the 40th anniversary of ACDC Back in Black. And, it's uh, true. We're right between the U.S. and U.K. release dates right now. The U.S., the album was released in the U.S. on the 25th of July and in the U.K. on the 31st. So if you go out online, there's all sorts of uh, celebrations of this record. A variety of different outlets are writing about it. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a... It's a cool little little fun fact about this uh, this episode is that it's celebrating the 40th anniversary of this record. Yeah, um, we couldn't have planned it any better, and and we didn't plan it. So. Oh, we totally did not plan <laughs> plan it at all. It was a complete accident. <laughs> Visualize the mindset of these guys. You know, we got a band that's been plugging away for the better part of a decade, grinding it out in the trenches, playing all these you know, hole-in-the-wall spots, releasing records. Um, You know, they finally come to the States. They're on fire. And lo and behold, their front man passes away. And now they have this uh, task in front of them to, uh, to, you know, regroup and move forward with a brand-new singer. And 
that's like no small feat. I mean, the singer, the vocalist is like kind of the character of the band. As you mentioned, like Highway to Hell was like a major breakthrough for ACDC. Like this put them on the map. It, 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 it broke them in the States. They were on the precipice of like becoming huge. And like, so, you know, Bon Scott dies February 19th, 1980. Uh, now, by con and, and the band has a new vocalist like within a couple of months. Okay, Brian Johnson. Contrast that with Led Zeppelin, major band of the day. Um, arguably the biggest band of the 70s, um, a rock band. And John Bonham dies just seven months after Bond in the same way. And whereas ACDC decided to press on, Led Zeppelin call it a day. So it was, a, it was an interesting um, you know, study in contrasts there for two events that happened just seven months apart. Yeah. With, with two, you know? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of different stories floating around out there about how ACDC actually found Brian Johnson. Now, this is a, an anecdotal story that I do not believe was ever really confirmed by anyone. But there's, there's a, a legend out there that Bon Scott had actually seen Jordy play. And uh, Brian, he was really impressed with Brian Johnson that you know, he was really going for it live. He was rolling around on stage. And uh, it turned out... A, according to this story that he, uh, that Brian Johnson had appendicitis and was writhing in pain actually, instead of, uh, performing a, um, transgressive frontman activity as, uh, as you would. So, <laughs> and then the story goes on to say that Bon Scott approached, uh, the brothers young and was like, Hey, if anything ever happens to me, you should look up this guy, Brian Johnson from this band, Jordy. So that's one story that's out there floating around in the ether whether or not it's true i don't know jay right well i mean look we can confirm we can confirm that bon and brian johnson definitely met and shared a stage together uh in england bon scott's previous band went over to england and opened for geordie um and uh they were staying at Jordy had to kind of, um, you know, it wasn't, Jordy didn't usually have deluxe accommodations on these things, but the, this one particular time they had this bed and breakfast. And uh, the, the woman who ran the bed and breakfast didn't really want, wasn't really enthusiastic about having long hairs in her establishment. And uh, apparently Bon Scott's band were shown the door. Oh, wow. And it, it was a cold night and uh, Brian Johnson wasn't having it. And he kind of, after the landlady goes to bed, they open up the back door and they wave the Bon Scott's band in and they kind of stay up all night, like hanging out, drinking beers by the heater, huddling around the heater um, so everybody could stay warm. So they apparently hit it off. And it, it, it seems clear that um, Bon Scott definitely had a favorable impression of Brian Johnson, whether he relayed that to the young brothers as like, this is my replacement. Nobody knows. But according to uh, ACDC, Maximum Rock and Roll, uh, which was written by Murray Engelhart and uh, Arnaud Durio. Uh, this book came out a few years ago. Um, it's considered the uh, definitive biography of ACDC. Uh, and in that book, apparently it was Mutt Lang who, um, who suggested Geordie, uh, suggested Brian Johnson. Um, and we also know that both Angus and Malcolm had seen Brian Johnson perform when Geordie came to Australia 
uh, and did a tour of Australia. And apparently, according to the book, uh, they did not see him together. They saw him at different shows, which I thought was interesting. Um, but uh, so, yeah, it, 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 what, what seems clear is that if the story is true that Mutt Lang suggested him, he was not an unknown quantity to the Young Brothers. They were certainly familiar with him and had seen him perform. So that seems pretty legit, you know? Were you aware of any any other vocalists that auditioned for ACDC? The book names a lot of people who were considered for the role, including uh, Steve Marriott from The Small Faces. Okay. Uh, Stevie Wright, who was the singer of the Easy Beats, uh, which was George Van, uh, George Young, the the, the 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 young brother's eldest brother. Um, he was in a band called the the Easy. Beats. Right with the singer for the Easy Beats. Um, he was under consideration. Angry Anderson was under consideration. Um, oh wow! From Rose, although he wasn't in Rose Tattoo at the time yet, but he, Angry Anderson had played in a band called Buster Brown with Phil Rudd. So that's how they knew of Angry Anderson. He was under consideration. The book says that a lot. They saw a lot of singers. Uh, a lot of guys tried out, but a, but many of these guys kind of came in and their first strike against them is uh, apparently a lot of them wanted to sing Smoke on the Water as their audition track. Oh, man. And the Youngs were not having that. They were not into that. And to make matters worse, a lot of these guys were seemingly coming up and doing, you know, going along with the Deep Purple theme here. We're kind of pulling a David Coverdale routine, kind of strutting around and wrapping their leg around the microphone stand and all this shit. Uh, Young Brothers is kind of, that does not fly with them. Brian Johnson came in and uh, requested an Ike and Tina Turner song. And so right away, the Young Brothers were like, oh, okay, all right, here we go. So that was kind of the first thing that endeared him. And then he asked them, do you mind if I smoke? And of course, the Young Brothers, the young brothers smoked like chimneys. So that was another... That was another, uh, you know, <laughs> he scored some points with that one, too. <laughs> All right, so some of the uh, particulars about this record is that it's their seventh LP and uh, released July 25th, 1980, uh, recorded April through May 1980 down at Compass Point Studio, Nassau, Bahamas, once again produced by Mutt Lang the uh, architect of their sound, in my opinion. And uh, mixed at Electric Lady Studios in New York, uh, released on Albert Atlantic, clocking in at 42 minutes, 11 seconds. Yeah, uh, yeah the yeah. lineup obviously was Brian Johnson, the new vocalist, Angus and Malcolm on guitars, Cliff Williams, bass and backing vocals, and Phil Rudd on drums. Uh, we got a bunch of different people yeah. involved in the production. We got Lang as the main man, Tony Platt, assistant engineer, Benji Armbrister, assistant engineer, Jack Newber, assistant engineer, Brad Samuelson, mixer, Bob Ludwig, the Bob Ludwig, mastering yeah. of the LP, uh, Barry Diamond, mastering of the CD, which obviously was much later, uh, Bob Deferin, art direction, and Robert Ellis photography. This album has some of the greatest, uh, you know, some of the most popular and, and what I can, you know, what many people consider to be the greatest ACDC songs of all time. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of worth pointing out at the top here, maybe. This album is the best-selling rock album of all time. It sold more records than Led Zeppelin, 
uh, any record, any single record by Led Zeppelin, any single record by Pink Floyd, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, none of those bands have a single record that has sold as many records as Back in Black. And in fact, there's only one record in existence that has sold more copies, and that is Michael Jackson's Thriller. So that kind of shows you the sort of what we're dealing with here. You know what I mean? That, that's amazing to me. And, and actually, one of the things that's you know, just kind of supporting that and, or commenting on that is when, um, when Brian Johnson joined the band, there was uh, Angus, the, bro- the brothers, told him that I hope you don't uh, mind getting your feelings hurt because most of the critics uh, slag this band. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, it's made me think of Kiss, like another band that um, yep. the critics – fucking never took them seriously they hated them they always got horrible reviews yet they're one of the biggest money-making record-selling machines in rock and roll period you know kiss is another band that most people uh, that were had like a journalistic or critical bent uh dismissed them yet they just were massively popular with people yeah i mean there's a lot of that in you know there's a lot of revisionist uh, history about how these bands were always sort of um revered i mean even led zeppelin and black sabbath their first albums were like completely trashed by rolling stone it's it's rarely are the critics the ones having the last laugh you know yeah um all right so shall we go through the tracks yeah man yeah it's great great track listing here yeah so the album kicks off with of course hell's bells which is um one of the uh you know one of the signature uh, ACDC songs. They've been playing it, uh, you know, since it came out, essentially. It was the second single released off the album. Um, now, it opens with the bells. The bells toll for Bon Scott. That was del- that was a deliberate nod to his passing. That's why they wanted to start off the album that way, which is also, you know, again, that's why the album was black. We can get to that later. But this is a very deliberate um, acknowledgement and nod to the death of Bon Scott here. The bells are tolling. Um you know, uh, this, you know, I, I read an article that was recently uh, published in Classic Rock magazine, um, you know, based around the anniversary of the album. And the writer said that the song had a sense of gravitas that the band never had before, which I thought was a great point. If you think of ACDC prior to this, you know, 99% of the songs are sort of these like, and even going forward, I mean, these songs are like, they're like sexual double entendres and most of the time, you know what I mean? Um, there's the, uh, this was a song, this was a, a death chant, essentially, you know? E- even the riff, uh, which Malcolm described as ominous and Angus described as mystical, was very different. Uh, ACDC hasn't really done anything like this before or since. Um, and, uh, you know, before we started the show, we were kind of going over some things. We were talking about how, you know, they, they recorded the album in Nassau, the Bahamas. And I think part of the idea was not only to isolate themselves from the distractions of London, where they were based at the time, Australia, where they were living. Um, but uh, also, you know, there's going to be like, uh, we'll, we'll turn into a little bit of a relaxing vacation. But, in, you know, instead of like the beaches and sun that associate with the Bahamas, it was like a, it was like a hurricane and rain. <laughs> like the entire time they were there and so the story goes that that you know they, they didn't have much by the way of lyrics when they went in the studio they had they had a lot of the songs um uh but they didn't have much in the way with lyrics and um brian johnson was particularly stumped on on what to do with with this um this track 
and um, he just one of the storms just happened to start right when he was you know, having a chat with Mutt Lang, and um, you know it was very loud, and he kind of made reference to like the rolling thunder and the hurricane of storms, and 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 Mutt Lang kind of encouraged Brian Johnson to roll with that, and that's how you kind of end up with that beginning part, that kind of great introduction to the record, and the sort of creating that stormy feeling um, that, that kicks off Hell's Bells. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I uh, often, you know, similarly, man, I was like, yeah, this song, like, it's not about sex and, you know, all that kind of jazz. It's, this is like probably one of the first ACDC songs I think I ever heard. And because, um, you know, I like I was like I said in the last episode, uh, I, I heard this stuff first. You know, I mean, we're, we're like, oh, we're little kids when this record came out. There's no Internet. There's no, you know, Spotify or any of that kind of stuff. So you kind of get things when you get them. And um, I remember at the time I was uh, diving deeply into like all these like late 70s, like devil movies, you know, like uh, the devil's reign. Where, yeah, you know, Ernest Borgnine plays uh, plays uh, the devil basically. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, so. Is it I, Bill Shatner? Yeah, movie too? Bill Shatner's in it. You know, <laughs> actually, I think um, what the hell is it? Var- Vardis or something like that. Vallis v- v- Vardis, his name was. Anyway, oh. whatever. I'm yeah. going to get off on another tangent, but yeah. this song, you know, Hell's Bells, that guitar intro, it felt like watching like a devil movie like a 70s devil movie to me. Totally. You know, and, totally. and that was like right up my alley because, um, you know, I was also really into Sabbath. I was starting to get into that darker, you know, devil music angle that I started, I actually, you know, rolled with for the rest of my life, actually. But yeah, that was, <laughs> this was like the beginning of that for me. This, this specific song and this record with this fucking intense, like black cover, you know, yeah, yeah. And then, and then, of course, you know, the bells that it starts with, you know, we should point out there's an the f- interesting story about this. This was these bells that you hear on the recording is actually a bell, a bell, a one ton custom made bell um, that was commissioned by the band. And it was made by John Taylor Bell Founders in I think it's pronounced Loughborough, England, Um because they knew that they were going to want to reproduce this and they want to bring it on stage. They want to have this giant bell to bring with them on tour, you know? So, but, but in, in terms of the timing of the recording, it seemed like the bell wasn't going to be, the manufacturing wasn't going to be done in time for them to record this actual bell. So the, the guy at the bell founder, at the, the foundry, referred them to a local church and said, record this bell for your album. So, so, uh, you know, Tony Platt goes over there and he try mics up this bell, and uh, but he quickly realizes there's like a, a bunch of birds thing. There's got they've got nests up there. So every time he tries to record the bell, he just gets all this bird noise, all the chirp, all the you know the the, the birds sort of like loudly, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, leaving the premises as as they, as the tolling of the bells. So that didn't work out. So through that whole process then they go he goes back to the bell founders and it turns out well okay maybe we can get this done in time after all so he ends up uh recording the actual bell with like 12 microphones um brings it back to this to the to the studio and then he and mutt lang go through pick the best sounds and i guess they slowed down the tape to kind of deepen the sound to create 
what you hear on the record. Um, and then that was the actual bell that they took on tour. And there was famously, there was a little red dot painted on the side. So Brian Johnson knew exactly where to strike it, um, to, to make the proper, you know, the, the proper tolling, I guess, of the bells, you know, that's awesome. So yeah. it's logistically, yeah. man. So they, they had a foundry in England, right. To, yeah. to cast this bell. And then they transport it down to the Bahamas, like on like a, right. a, a fucking boat or something like that. No, no, no. So they did. They I think they I think all the recording was done in London of the bell. And okay. then, he, and right. then just brought the tape back um, because there's another story. Uh, I'll keep it quick. There's another story about when they went to where they were rehearsing for the tour and they were re rehearsing in some theater and they wanted to bring the bell in. And it couldn't fit like through any of the doors, essentially. So, so they basically had to like I don't I don't don't get I don't even I'm, it, the book. I, this is from the Maxim Rock and Roll book. I don't know how they, but they they they, they basically had to like get the police to stop Central London traffic. <laughs> they lowered the, the bell was on a crane. It weighed a ton. Remember? Yeah. So lowering it on a crane, and I don't know how they got it through the top of the building, but they somehow had to lower it through the roof. There must have been some sort of opening that was big enough up there. Um, they had to lower it from the roof. So the bell was like, turned out to be like a huge logistical nightmare. And in fact, the first warm up run of dates, the first week they did in Belgium and in Holland, Brian Johnson's live to do the band. The bell did not make the trip with them because it was just such a logistical nightmare. Damn. Yeah. That's pretty, uh, pretty ambitious. Yeah. 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 We're going to commission a one ton bell. <laughs> a ton. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. Should we go? Should we move to shoot to thrill? Yeah, man. Let's go on. All right. So now shoot to thrill. I, first of all, I just want to. This is probably one of the most surprising things that I learned in, in doing research for this, for this record. Shoot to thrill was not a single. Really? I, which blows my mind. I, I It was not released as a single. I, I grew up hearing this song on the radio. I just assumed it was a single. It was never released as a single. Uh, there's no 45 uh, ever released, I, which is crazy to me, because to me it's one of their signature tracks. It was not actually a single. So Shoot a Thrill, it has all the usual sort of sexual double entendres that ACDC are famous for, but Brian Johnson explains that the song was actually inspired by this sort of very... English, I don't know, well, I don't know how very English it was. I'm sure there was a lot of this going on in the good old U.S. of A. too, but there was a sort of English phenomenon that was being reported in the papers at the time of all these housewives who were on Valium. Um, Rolling Stones had done the song Mother's Little Helper, which kind of, um, years earlier, which had kind of addressed this phenomenon. Um, but this song was, was re this, this story was reemerging again. It had kind of was enjoying an encore performance uh, in the papers around the time Brian Johnson was writing lyrics. Um, so we, it kind of explains that lyric, too many women, too many pills. Um, so shoot to thrill. You have the, you have the sexual aspect of it, but then also, you know, possibly he's implying that some of these housewives were not necessarily popping pills necessarily, but maybe they were crushing them up and, uh, liquefying them and, you know, banging them into their arm junkie style. So, hmm. um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, another fun fact is, uh, so Angus Young says that the uh, the breakdown that happens after 
the main solo, uh, was inspired by uh, Ennio Morricone's uh, set piece for that th the famous uh, three-way graveyard duel in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, wow. Yeah, he said that the that, that piece of music, uh, Ennio Morricone, who recently passed, um, he wrote a piece that kind of ramps up in three stages um, for that part of the film. And uh, Aaron Gis Young said that's what inspired him for that part of the song, which I also, I, I know I would have never put that together. So that was interesting. No, definitely not. You know, I just yeah. watched that again, actually, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It was an excellent movie. Yeah, great flick. Great flick. Yeah, the, the Too Many Women, Too Many Pills line, I just thought that, you know, shoot the thrill, you know, he's like, right, it's going running, yeah. running wild, you know, and he just had this experience too many women and taken himself too many pills. Well, I, I, I mean, I think it works both ways. That's yeah. the beauty of DC. I think he can he and I don't know if he I mean, Brian Johnson seems like a pretty earnest guy. I don't think he would go to the trouble of like concocting a cover story yeah. for, for, for like, for, you know what I mean? Where, where he just let, he'd let all my other sexual entendres, I'm going to let those slide. But this one, I have an explanation for. Like, yeah. no, I don't, I don't. I think he actually, I think that's actually, you know, I think it's actually something that's on his mind. But of course, you know, in classic, and, and Bon Scott, of course, set the template for this. It works both ways, you know? Yeah, no, I just wanted to, you know, illustrate that these uh, lyrics are uh, are open to interpretation despite yes. the fact that they appear to be very literal yes it's true I, I although i'm not i'm not sure that that can necessarily be said for, <laughs> for the next <laughs> 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 which uh, <laughs> which is uh what do you do for money honey um which is a uh, which is a great song um it was uh I, I, now see this was a flip side this is i have a 45 this is a flip side of one of the singles uh, and I'm not sure if it was, I'm not sure if it was, was it Hell's Bells? So the singles were Hell's Bells, Back in Black, You Shook Me All Night Long, and Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution. Um, and I know that um, What You Do for Money, Honey was in the flip of one of those, and Have a Drink on Me was also a flip of one of those. But um, So What You Do for Money, Honey, uh, George Young, the the... Angus and Malcolm's older brother, who was in the Easy Beats with a guy named Harry Vanda. And Harry Vanda and George Young produced all the ACDC records prior to Highway to Hell. Um, and he was certainly a formidable, um, a very in, he was a very influential person in their lives, uh, not only in being their older brother, but the Easy Beats were like massive. They were like the Beatles of Australia. Um, it, the, the level of popularity was it was that it was to that level in Australia. Um, so the young brothers had kind of seen that the the sort of you know um, the, the 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 trappings of of fame and popularity there with their older brother. So anyway, George is the one who apparently came up with this title. What do you do for money, honey? And uh, uh, he'd been uh, sitting on it since um, the sessions for the Power Ridge album, which he had produced, and. Um, so Brian Johnson took that title and uh, he made it, uh, he fashioned it into a tale of a, a, a woman who sort of, um, she's a high-end hooker, basically. She, she makes a, a tidy living for herself, accepting gifts and cash in exchange for sexual favors. Yeah, it's an epic story of... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, giving the dog a bone is next. Um and 
the story with this one, uh, again, this is according to uh, the ACDC Maximum Rock and Roll book. Um, they actually played uh, this, th these riffs, some of these riffs for this song at Brian Johnson's uh, second audition. And he, and he came up with some lyrics on the spot, which also kind of helped seal the deal for him. Now, the interesting thing about his callback audition, the second one, he was apparently two hours late. Uh-oh. This audition. And it, this, this was on March 25th, 1980. And the story was, it's because he'd actually been at another recording studio recording a vacuum cleaner jingle for Hoover. And... So he was the voice in the jingle, and the ad itself featured John Cleese from Monty Python. And he, because Brian Johnson had to travel from Newcastle to London for these auditions, he figured, well, if I have to go to London anyways, we'll, we'll book this stuff for the same day. <laughs> you know? Uh, so he's, he's two hours late for his, his second appearance with ACDC. Uh, in the, the, and so, you know, and ACDC at that point were kind of worried that he didn't want the job. The, 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 their... Their tour manager, uh, sort of, who was present for the audition, sort of explains that, like, by the second audition, the, the, the vibe had sort of changed from, you know, when Jonathan came in the first time, ACDC were very much in the mode of, who's our guy? We're looking for the guy. By the time, by the time they asked Jonathan back, they were pretty sure that this was the guy. And now they were nervous that he didn't want to do it, you know? Um, but um, a week later, uh, uh, on April Fool's Day, uh, Brian Johnson is announced as the band's new frontman, um, and then this is like literally just a week after he kind of improvised lyrics to "Giving the Dog a Bone." Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So interesting story about that one. That was one of the songs uh, off of this record that I, I used to uh, learn how to play guitar too. The uh, the guitar riff in this song. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, I mean, there's so many, uh, I mean, this is a great, if you're going to start somewhere with the guitar, that's back in black. It seems like a great place to, um, to start, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. So the next song, this is the last song on side a or side one, let me put my love into you, which to me is one of my favorite ACDC songs of all time. Uh, it is the, I think it's the sleeper track on, uh, this album. Um, uh, I don't know if you, I don't know if you, you know, but there, so there were, there were obviously, uh, there were some performance videos, um, like on a soundstage filmed as like official videos for this record, um, for, they did Back in Black, um, they did, uh, You Shook Me All Night Long, they did Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution, and they did What Do You Do For Money, Honey? They also did Let Me Put My Love In, Let Me Put My Love Into You, but for whatever reason, uh, let me put my love in you was not released until very recently. Like, I think like this month, um, I don't know why they sat on that clip. Um, uh, but it's great. And it starts out with Phil Rudd. Um, you know, he's locking in the beat and he's sort of like the camera's fixed on him and he's like smirking and making all these like great facial expressions, like kind of goofing around, um, as they're kind of, he's kind of leading into the song and it's, it's quite good. Um, so, let me put my love into you. Uh, ACDC, they all obviously have um, tons of songs about sex. Um, this is the only one that made the uh, PMRC's Filthy 15 a few years later. Tipper Gore's famous, uh, you know, I'm going to drag all the musicians into court and 
make them explain themselves in front of Congress, um, not court, Congress. And, uh, you know, and then it resulted in the sort of um, parental warning stickers that we ended up with in the 80s on the records. Um, but what's interesting about this song is apparently, and, and I can't find any source that says what the actual line is, but apparently one of the, the last line of the chorus actually had to be changed before they recorded it because even the band thought it was a bit much. <laughs> that was the kind of level they were on with this song. Um, I cannot find any confirmation of what that line actually was. Um, and, a, and so um, Bon Scott actually recorded a demo of this song with Angus and Malcolm a week before his death, but not as a singer. He actually played drums on the demo. Oh, so and, this is one of those songs that they were playing around with. Like, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there's, there's two songs, uh, one's, the other one's inside too, that, that where Bon Scott's on the demo, but he's not, he's not singing. He's playing drums. And uh, Bon Scott was the drummer in his first band, the, the Spectres. Um, so that, that is the tale of uh, Let Me Put My Love Into You, which, again, is one of my favorites. Filthy 15. The Filthy 15, yeah. I mean, they were on there with Prince and Twisted Sister and um, all kinds of people, yeah. Wasp, I think, of course, made the cut with um, Animal. Um, yeah. That's a great record, man. That, that, oh, yeah. First Wasp record. First we should wasp do that. Owl. We got to do that one. I have 100% interest in doing that. Yeah, I love that record. Um, all right, Nobody Side 2, and of course, the title track, uh, Back in Black. You know, And this is one of the great uh, songs and great guitar riffs uh, of all time. And um, so Malcolm apparently came up with this riff and he'd been playing it as sort of a warm up thing during sound checks and stuff um, for quite some time. But they didn't actually finish. He didn't actually finish the song until uh, after Bond's death. Um, and then um, I guess they kind of knew I, from what I can gather, it seems like the brothers came up with all the song titles and then kind of handed it over to Brian Johnson to write lyrics. Uh, with the understanding that they'd have kind of final cut on whatever those lyrics were, but they would kind of have the titles in place. So they they told him this song is called Black and Black and that you have to write this. This song is supposed to be a tribute to Bond, but it can't be like a sad, like a morbid song. It has to be like a celebration of his life. And uh, Brian Johnson, you know, felt, you know, hugely pressured by this um, sort of demand. Um, but he nailed it. And the song is exactly what, um, it, it, you know, what, what I think the brothers intended. Like, it's definitely, it's very much like, it's, it's the ACDC lifestyle as personified by Bond and written by Brian Johnson. And musically, what I like to, uh, ACDC is kind of famous for this all over the place. But this song in particular is ingenious in its use of space. Um, to kind of create that um, that the, the, that feeling of movement that they could create, and I think I, I may have this quote wrong here. I, I, I stumbled across this in the book, and then I couldn't find it again to kind of credit it properly. But someone said, and I think it was Steve Marriott from The Small Faces, and he, he kind of pointed out in a very British way, "It's the spaces what rock, like the spaces between where you're actually playing the notes." And I think like this song is such a, a personification of that. Uh, an interesting footnote about Back in Black, the Beastie Boys sampled it without permission 
for their song Rock Hard in 1984. Fifteen years later, in 1999, the Beastie Boys wanted to include Rock Hard on a compilation. Uh, and so they had to ask ACDC for permission. And ACDC said no. And uh, Mike D kind of was asked about it, Mike D from the Beastie Boys, and recalled that Malcolm basically told them, uh, it's nothing against you guys personally. Um, we just don't endorse sampling. We won't let anyone sample us. So kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, there's a controversial opinion about sampling, you know, especially back then when it was, you know, pretty much a new technology and people didn't really, you know, have like a, a full read on what it, what the implications were. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, then, of course, we go to uh, You Shook Me All Night, All Night Long. This was the first single from the album. And so, therefore, it is ACDC's first single with Brian Johnson on vocals and sort of the, the introduction uh, of Brian Johnson to ACDC fans. Um, now, uh, this is obviously one of the classic, uh, you know, uh, ACDC songs. Uh, I think they've been playing it ever since. Um, in fact, when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Fame in 2003, they performed You Shook Me All Night Long with uh, Steven Tyler of Aerosmith. Um, so there's a little bit of a controversy with this. Now, for years and years and years and years and years, ACDC claimed that they did not... Bon Scott had, had written some... Now, everyone agrees that Bon Scott had written some lyrics for this album before his death because they were working on this record. But uh, even in the book, Maximum Rock and Roll, which came out a, a few years ago now, I should actually look and find out what year it came out. Um, uh, it says that, you know, Angus made a, Angus and Malcolm made like a, a pretty like line in the sand uh, decision. Okay, so this book, Maximum Rock, Maximum Rock and Roll was published in 2006, so 14 years ago. Um, the book states Angus and Malcolm made a pretty hard and fast decision to not use any of Bond's lyrics. They're gonna start from scratch. Um, more recently than the book came out, it has come to light a lot of people, including Bond Scott's uh, on-again, off-again girlfriend, Silver Smith, and Malcolm Dome, who is a famous uh, journalist and kind of not you know, res respected. Silver Smith says that Bond Scott wrote the lyrics to this song, or at least some of them, in her flat in London. Uh, another girlfriend of Bon Scott's, he had a few, uh, in Miami, verifies that other lines of the song were also Bon's. And then Malcolm Dome goes as far as to say that he's, that Bon showed him a note, gave him a notebook with lyrics in it shortly before his death. And he read and he saw the line, the famous line, she told me to come, but I was already there, was in Bon's notebook. There's a lot of back and forth about did they use some of Bond lyrics? Did they not? Um, there's an interview in in um, according to classic. So this is a doubly sourced in the in the April 2020 issue of Classic Rock Magazine, which is celebrating the 40th anniversary of Back in Black. They that article says that Angus confirmed in a 1991 interview that they did end up using some of Bond's lyrics. Um, they don't go into any, any details about which lyrics were used. Yeah, so it, it's so now we have confirmation from the band itself that they definitely used some of Bond's lyrics. And given all this other evidence about that particular line, um, she told me to come, but I was already there. It seems like that was 
that seems like a likely candidate for something that they used from Bond's notebooks. You can almost hear in your mind Bond Scott singing the song, though. You know what I totally. mean? Totally. I mean, and totally. that line, I've, I've, you know, I, I really wasn't aware of the controversy around that one line, but that does sound like a Bond Scott line for sure. Yeah, and the fact that there's so many people, uh, you know, to the two girlfriends and Malcolm Dome all kind of saying the same thing, uh, specifically about that line. Um, I don't know. It's, it, it, it seems believable. Um, uh, but another sort of interesting footnote that kind of blew my mind here, we were talking about earlier. So this song has been covered by all kinds of people. Uh, but I was shocked to learn that Brian Johnson performed this song with Billy Joel, of all people, <laughs> at Billy Joel's concert at Madison Square Garden in 2014, which was not that long ago. Oh, man. So, so Billy Joel is an ACDC fan, apparently, and he invites Brian Johnson to come down to Madison Square Garden. Uh, Brian Johnson lives in Florida, if I'm not mistaken. So I don't know if he was in town, if he flew him up or what, to come sing You Shook Me All Night Long at a Billy Joel concert. That's, that's fucking unbelievable, man. Yeah. I, 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 it is, it is, it was, it was almost as shocking as the fact that Shoot to Thrill wasn't a single. <laughs> Also, wasn't this in uh, Maximum Overdrive, the Stephen King uh, movie? Yes. So in 1986, uh, AC, Stephen King famously, two of his, his two favorite bands are ACDC and the Ramones. Yeah. And uh, so he wanted ACDC to do the soundtrack for Who Made Who in, uh, in 1986 when, they, when, they, um, when his book was made into a movie. Um, so the whole soundtrack uh, is, I think, I don't know how, I know Who Made Who was written specifically for the movie and maybe one or two others, I can't remember. Um, but most of it is old, older ACDC songs repurposed for Who Made Who. Uh, so You Shook Me All Night Long was on this Who Made Who and I, Hell's Bells was as well. Um, maybe a couple others from here. I, I think we'll kind of get to that as we move along. But yeah, so a lot of the, a couple of these songs, at least two, uh, showed up again on the Who Made Who soundtrack. Six years later. Now, Maximum Overdrive was the uh, Stephen King directed his directorial uh, debut during the height of his cocaine use. That's an interesting yeah. side about that movie. So, uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 Uh, St Stephen King. Um, I mean, uh, the guy is uh, a lot of people will not knock Stephen King. I don't I don't get that. I think he's uh, I actually recently read his book, which is about writing yeah. and uh, uh, on writing. It's, it was fantastic. Um, and he's uh, I don't know. And he, has, and he has great taste in music. You know, I mean, ACDC, Ramones, what's wrong with that? So I'm, I'm a lifelong Stephen King fan. I, I, you know, as a as a young man, probably right, right around the same time I started listening to ACDC, I started reading Stephen King and uh to this yeah. day, I read his books. I read his novels. Uh, I read, um, uh, I read a bunch of his stuff recently, and uh, still quite enjoyable. Yeah, you know, I hadn't read anything since probably uh, I. The last thing I read of his, like, I, I remember buying the Green Mile series as they came out when I was like, I don't know, nineteen or twenty or whatever. They they were released like sort of serially, you know, like once a, once a month or something like that. There was six books, I think. Um, that was the last stuff I read until I kind of 
someone recommended his on writing book, uh, and I picked it up and I read it a couple months ago, and uh, it was great. And actually, I'd actually maybe go out and be like, oh man, why haven't I read more Stephen King? Like, why did I kind of give up on him after that? I don't, I don't know why. There's no good reason. Um, so I, I went out and bought more. So, um, uh, okay, but back to ACDC. Back in black. Uh, we, the next song is "Have a Drink on Me," which is kind of a self-explanatory uh, song. Um, you know, ACDC, in, in addition to being, um, you know, so many of the songs have this, this sort of sexual inclinations. Um, they're very much drinking. Uh, these are drinking songs, a lot of them, you know. And so Have a Drink on Me to me is, um, you know, I spin, uh, you know, before the pandemic hit, I was regularly, you know, I did a heavy, heavy metal and hard rock night at a local bar here in Los Angeles. And have a drink on me. Uh, it was a regular cut in the rotation. Um, uh, it just fits. This, I mean, it's like that's what you, that's where you play it. That's the song, you know. Um, and uh, a side note: this was another one where Bon Scott played drums on the demo before his death. Um, so, another interesting fact. And I, you know, also um, it can also be said that Bon Scott. Uh, having too many drinks on other people uh, might have contributed to Bon Scott's downfall. Yeah, that is very true. Very true. Um, Shake a Leg is the next one. And, uh, you know, this is an interesting one. This is just kind of, this is, I have to say, if there's one song that, uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's a bad song. It's, it's, so, it's just, to me, this is the one song that is not up to the level of the other songs. Shake a leg, um, but it's interesting because uh, Brian Johnson is singing at the top of his range on this song, and that did not go unnoticed by a young Joe Elliott of Def Leppard, um, who now Def Leppard opened a show for ACDC at the Palladium in New York on the Back in Black tour, and this was very early in Brian Johnson's kind of tenure. They hadn't done much. Um, touring yet he had, they had toured europe they, they this is johnson's first time in america with acdc he's playing the palladium in new york city def leppard are opening just that night def leppard only had one album out at the time the on through the night album so they're a super young band joe elliott's like 20 but john and brian johnson's like 32 i think at this time and it had tons of experience with jordy and, and, and brian johnson's still nervous and he pulls joe elliott aside and is asking him for advice at this show uh, uh, but as Joe Elliott notes, uh, Def Leppard were also managed by, uh, they had the same management company, uh, Peter, Peter Mensch and, uh, the other guy there, um, they both mentioned ACDC and Def Leppard. So Def Leppard guys actually heard Back in Black. They were one of the first people to hear it before it even came out because their manager was also ACDC's manager. He just played on the tape. So this song, Shake a Leg, struck a chord, uh, so to speak, with uh, Joe Elliott because he noted that Brian Johnson made it cool to sing high again. Uh, and this, this was the song because he's kind of, Johnson's kind of at the top of his range there. Yeah, that's, um, this is like one of those like uh, album tracks, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah. you, know, you put it, you don't take it off, but you don't necessarily reach for it, you know? Yeah, to me, it's the only one. Uh, to me, it's the only one that I could kind of like take or leave. You know, yeah. everything else like spot on here. And so, and so, and this is interesting because 
so that what we just went through those nine songs those were going to be the album those nine songs but then atlantic was like well look we want 10 we want one more song so they wrote one more song apparently on the spot in the studio and according to classic rock magazine in about 15 minutes and that song is rock and roll evolution if you can believe that wow uh, and the very first sound you hear on the song is Johnson taking a drag from his cigarette as he's about to start. And then the kind of stuff that he's kind of talking at the beginning, like rhythmically, but he's not singing, he's talking. And that was kind of, that was super off the cuff. And it was, that was done at Mutt Lang's request. He just kind of said, Brian Johnson's in the vocal booth and Mutt Lang said, hey, uh, Brian, could you just say something here? And, and Brian Johnson didn't know, he just, he thought maybe he's trying to get levels. He didn't know he was going to keep it. So he just kind of off the cuff says this stuff about, you know, middlemen or, you know, whatever he's talking about there. Um, and they kept it and it was just totally, but it's, 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 um, but the inspiration for, um, the title apparently came from, now there's varying stories. It either came from newspaper articles or an experience that Angus Young had uh, that revol and they both of these things revolve around the old marquee club in London. And apparently the neighbors of the Marquee Club in London were complaining about noise pollution coming from, um, you know, the club, uh, the bands. And so this was either something that Johnson read in the newspaper or it was possible that uh, in the Bon Scott days, um, you know, ACDC had played there and uh, Angus Young made some comment. It's unclear, but it, it definitely revolves around noise pollution coming from the Marquee Club in London. Um, and uh, this was the fourth and final single released from the album, uh, and it hit number 15 on the UK single charts, um, which is actually, I was surprised, that th that was the highest that any song off the album reached in the UK, 15. I, I would have thought it would have been, um, given that this went on to sell, uh, you know, 50 million copies, I guess it doesn't matter, but um, at the time, I would have thought, it, you know, these songs had hit harder, but apparently not. Um, but yeah, not bad for a song, uh, you know, allegedly written in um, 15 minutes in the studio, right? Damn, yeah, that's impressive, actually. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You have any favorite cuts on this one? Man, I mean, there's just so many. But I, like I said, I think, you know, you, I, you know, one of the things I was thinking of as I was going back and listening to this record is that all the the hits, you know, the the Hell's Bells, the Back in Blacks the um, rock and roll and noise pollution, even shoot to thrill. These songs are so like, and I think I can speak for a lot of ACDC fans. These songs are so ingrained in your consciousness. You hear them still on the radio and you've been hearing them at least, you know, you and I know I've been hearing them since we we're little kids. Um, you kind of, you, you, you kind of lose, you don't appreciate the nuance of them anymore because you just kind of like, Oh yeah, this song. And, but when you go back and actually really listen, the nuances of these songs are like, uh, like I was like the, the space thing I was talking about in Back in Black. It's just so obvious to me when you listen to it with that kind of ear. You're like, holy shit, man! Like they were, that was it. I mean, that was kind of ACDC's thing, but they nailed it on that song. But for me, I think, I mean, I love all the songs, but for me, like the sleeper hit, like I said, is "Let Me Put My Love Into You" because it's not a song you hear on the radio, even though. Uh, to me, it easily could have been a single. I mean, uh, it, it's no, it, to me, it's, it's interesting that, you know, Mutt Lang produced Hysteria for 
Def Leppard seven years later um, because, you know, seven of the 10 songs from Hysteria were released as singles and did quite, and that album did quite well. This album often did quite well. There were only, there were four singles, but I mean, I feel like Let Me Put My Love Into You could have been a single. Uh, Shoot the Thrill, I could have sworn was a single. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, I mean, What Do You Do For Money, Honey? Or, or uh, um, Have a Drink On Me, even? I mean, these songs could have easily been singles. Um, so, uh, I don't know. But yeah, for me, I think, uh, I, I, I love them all, but like the, the, the sleeper cut is Let Me Put My Love Into You. Well, what, about, what about you, Mike? Well, Shoot the Thrill was like, that was, that was definitely my, my number two. Yeah. And my number one is Hell's Bells, even though that is like such an obvious track on the record to say is your favorite. I yeah. still get the same sort of chills when I hear the, you know, the tolling bell and the guitar intro and just the uh, the kind of heaviness of the lyrics, too. You know? Yeah, no, I agree, man. I mean, that song, that song still I mean, like we were talking about earlier, that song still stands out in the catalog as a very different uh, tonally for. ACDC, they didn't have any lyrics. They, they still don't. They don't have any lyrics like that. They don't have any riffs like that. Like, th that song is totally unique, so I completely agree. It's interesting that Back in Black was such a major success uh, all around the world, but especially in the U.S., um, that the, you know, the suits at Atlantic were so pleased with the results that, um, you know, suddenly they realized um, that they had another ACDC album in the can that they hadn't released. And that album was Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, which they, which Atlantic had rejected the first time around because they didn't think it was going to cut the mustard. So now they see ACDC as this huge moneymaker, which they were, and they're like, okay, well, we're now we're going to we're going to release this old ACDC album that we've been sitting on. So now in the United States, now meanwhile, Dirty Deeds is out in Europe and out in Australia and the UK, but they're in this bizarre position in the U.S. This this country that they've now solidified their position in with Back in Black, the next record that comes out in the U.S. after Back in Black is Dirty Deeds Done Cheap with Bon Scott singing. So that must have been a little bit of a confusing scenario <laughs> for, for U.S. fans who kind of maybe didn't pay attention to personnel changes or whatever, you know? Um, it's just a, I, I can't think of another uh, example of something like that, certainly not on that scale. Well, that's it, man. Thanks, Jay. And, uh, yeah, thank you. you know, everyone be safe out there. And uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll catch you guys on the flip side. That's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, an official Gimme Metal podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. This show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Metal, streaming on the web or iOS or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care. Yeah.